Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Laura Sol. Bringing us the latest science news this week are Mira Senthalingam and Diana O'Carroll. Coming up, how protein mimics cut off cell communication to combat HIV. They've engineered a molecule that is close enough to the appearance of a natural protein that it can fool and stop biological processes such as cell communication. Why a key gene can help rice fight off fungus. The team from Japan have identified one of the key protecting elements against a disease called blast. And how humans are the metabolism of living, breathing megacities. This is where cities are seen almost as animals that take in energy and nutrients but then defecate and expel a heap of waste. Plus, Sarah Castor Perry takes us back to This Week in Science History, which saw the catastrophic eruption of Krakatoa in Indonesia in 1883. That's all on the way. It's time to find out what's been going on in the world of science this week with our Naked Scientist correspondent, Diana O'Carroll. Now, firstly, Diana, scientists have found yet another use for proteins. That's right. Protein shakes, protein receptors, protein markers, protein signals and protein enzymes. It seems there's nothing you can't do with a protein. Well, scientists have been synthesising chemical proteins for a little while now and the latest off the production line is an anti-HIV protein mimic. This week, scientists from the University of Wisconsin-Madison reported in the journal PNAS that they've engineered a molecule that is close enough to the appearance of a natural protein that it can fool and stop biological processes such as cell communication. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, viruses communicate using proteins, anything from HIV to Ebola, influenza and herpes. Virus cells need to chat to their host cells in order to infect them. So if you can build a sort of nightclub bouncer for these proteins, then you can potentially stop the virus from spreading. And it seems that you need protein to fight protein to do this. So how does this actually work? Well, Samuel Gelman and his team built some of these molecules so that they resembled proteins by giving them peptide bonds. So they tested the protein bouncer by adding it to human cells in the laboratory and exposing those cells to HIV. These protein mimics actually seem to block the proteins produced by the HIV, thereby preventing infection of the human cells. The thing that's extra special about these protein mimics is that the scientists can manipulate their shape. Why is it useful to manipulate the shape? Well, ordinary proteins will eventually be broken down by an enzyme that happens to be floating past. But the proteins these researchers have manufactured are an unusual shape that most enzymes simply won't recognise or know what to do with. Another advantage of these protein mimics is that they are much bigger than drug molecules, and this makes them much more effective in blocking other protein interactions. So you've mentioned it as a use for HIV. Is it a potential cure? Well, the researchers don't know if this can be safely used in people yet, so there's no guarantee this will be prescribed anytime soon. But what it does mean is they've opened quite an exciting new avenue for research, where scientists can actually control the shape of the proteins that they synthesise. Well, also this week, moving from controlling proteins to controlling rice, where it's now hoped that we can protect rice from fungal attack. Yeah, well, it is good news for rice this week, as researchers have located a gene responsible for protecting it from fungal attack. And publishing in the journal Science, a team from Japan have identified one of the key protecting elements against a disease called blast. 
Blast is a type of fungus which causes massive problems in rice production. And just to quote some figures, Magnaporte grisea affects rice in at least 85 countries across the globe, and it's thought to annually destroy enough rice to feed 60 million people. So where do we get this protective gene from? Well, the blast-resistant gene is already naturally found in some species of rice, specifically japonica rice. It's called PI21, and it makes a protein that can bind to heavy metals. The team, led by Shuichi Fukuoka, tested two lines of rice plants, one with the PI21 gene and one without. They found that in the plant with PI21, the fungal hyphae, these are the cells that branch out as the fungus progresses through the plant, couldn't grow into neighbouring cells. And they think that genes which make proteins that can bind to heavy metals are really important in protecting the plant from fungal invaders. So do they know how it works? Well, the researchers aren't sure exactly what's happening at the molecular level just yet. And unlike protective proteins we talked about earlier, this gene doesn't stop the fungus from growing in host cells to start with. The gene only seems to stop the fungus from growing out of its host cell. But what's really special is that this gene can be cloned and bred into other species of rice. So potentially any other types of rice can benefit from this fungal resistance. Well, that sounds very promising, seeing as rice is such a staple ingredient for so many people around the world. Now, moving on to more urban areas, as it seems urban cities are now being considered as living things. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard people use the phrase like heart of the city, lungs of the city, and almost certainly arteries. But now scientists are increasingly viewing urban environments as living, breathing entities of their own. And at the American Chemical Society meeting this week, that was the major debate. Now, how exactly is a city alive? Well, Charles Kolb gave a talk at the meeting on urban metabolism. This is where cities are seen almost as animals that take in energy and nutrients, but then defecate and expel a heap of waste. So going in is food, water, fuels and building materials. Coming out are gas emissions, or farts if you like, such as methane and CO2, plus sewerage, heat and pollutants. But aren't these just human emissions? Well, in Kolb's model, humans are seen as urban metabolizers, along with the factories, industry, landfill, pets, vermin and power stations. A key metabolizer that we can target is transport, such as cars, lorries and buses, for example. And Kolb claims that by using his model of urban metabolism, he can reveal the balance or imbalance of what goes in and what comes out. So can we assess individual urban centres and their health? Yeah, that's the idea. By comparing the urban metabolisms of different cities, Kolb hopes to identify the areas where changes can be made, because some countries are experiencing greater problems controlling the growth of urban areas, while other countries are tackling the waste products that their urban environments produce. Air quality is a huge problem in even the cleanest of cities, and the different metabolizers will have different effects according to the location of your city. So if we see the city as a living, breathing, sick patient, maybe we can work towards finding the right medicine. And moving back towards disease now, and our final story for this week, Diana, there may be another hope in the fight against malaria. Yes, it's a very anti-disease news collection this week, and also reported in the journal PNAS is a naturally occurring defence against malaria. The magic stuff is called heme oxygenase 1, or HO1 for short, and it's normally released by the body anyway, to at least mediate the symptoms of malaria. So how does it work? When a person is infected with the malaria parasite, which is called plasmodium, the parasite replicates inside the host's red blood cells. And once the plasmodium has multiplied enough, the red blood cells burst and release their heme groups. 
Now, these are the four ion centres to which oxygen can bind when the blood is transporting oxygen around the body. But when these heme groups are released from the blood cell, they can interfere with oxygen transport, leading to a lot of cell damage and eventually death. But HO1 can actually break down these heme groups and therefore prevent a lot of the damage. But if we do naturally produce this, why do we still suffer if we catch malaria? When produced naturally, HO1 only mediates the symptoms of malaria, but it turns out that a drug already on the market, known as N-acetylcysteine, or NAC, has the same effect as HO1. It doesn't directly target the plasmodium parasites, but it does break down these heme groups, and, as Miguel Suarez and his team have shown in mice, that can reduce the severity of the malaria infection quite significantly. So will this lead to resistant strains of plasmodium? Well, Miguel and his team think not, since they aren't directly targeting the parasite. They're just going for the vessels in which it multiplies. So hopefully this could lead to not only treatments of malaria, but also other infectious diseases too. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now, Sarah Castaperi looks back to 1883, when the eruption of Krakatoa in Indonesia killed at least 40,000 people. This week in science history saw in 1883 the catastrophic eruption of Krakatoa in Indonesia. The eruption and subsequent pyroclastic flows and tsunami killed at least 40,000 people, destroyed towns and villages and had effects on global climate for several years. It is considered to be one of the most important eruptions in the history of volcanology. As well as being one of the largest eruptions in recorded history, it was the first where we have enough global accounts and measurements to understand what happened. There are around 1,500 active volcanoes in the world, 75% of which are found on the Pacific Ring of Fire around the Pacific Ocean. Krakatoa is located in the Sunda Strait between Sumatra and Java in Indonesia at an area known as a subduction zone, where the Indo-Australian tectonic plate is pushed down underneath the Eurasian plate, causing large amounts of volcanic and seismic activity. It was an earthquake caused by this subduction that caused the devastating Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. What makes Krakatoa so violent is that it is exactly over the point where the subduction zone changes direction, turning northwards, creating extra tension and fissures in the rocks. The volcanoes on Krakatoa are stratovolcanoes, steep-sided and made up of alternating layers of solidified lava, ash and rock. They erupt periodically and often violently. They are the most common sort of volcano on Earth, and if you ask someone to picture a volcano, chances are this is the sort they will imagine. Other examples are Mount Vesuvius in Italy, Mount Etna and Mount St Helens. Records of Krakatoa erupting stretch back to the 5th century AD, and in 1883, following several months of earth tremors, the first eruptions of the volcano began in May, Steam and ash began to spew from one of Krakatoa's smaller volcanic cones. This eruption was only a fraction of the force that those to come. In the afternoon of Sunday the 26th of August 1883, several explosions occurred as all three volcanic cones on Krakatoa began to erupt. Huge volumes of ash and rock were shot into the atmosphere and began to fall on the surrounding area. Two even larger explosions followed in the early hours of the morning of the 27th, causing pyroclastic flows clouds of burning hot gas, ash and rock that rushed down the volcano and across the surface of the sea, causing tsunamis that spread around the Sunda Strait. A third huge blast occurred at 10.02 in the morning. This explosion was so violent and loud that it was heard over 3,000 miles away in Mauritius, 
and the force generated is estimated to have been more than 20,000 times greater than the atomic bombs dropped on Japan at the end of the Second World War. The shockwaves reverberated around the world seven times and the noise is still regarded to be the loudest sound ever recorded. As lava was fired out of the volcano, the magma chamber beneath the islands emptied and over half of Krakatoa Island collapsed into the sea. The majority of the deaths from Krakatoa were as a result of the tsunami, which devastated the low-lying land around the strait on southern Sumatra and western Java. The wave was so large that it carried one ship nearly two miles inland. Pyroclastic flows, just like those that engulfed the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum when Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, destroyed villages up to 45 kilometres away. The death toll of the eruption was over 36,000 people, still the largest of any volcanic eruption in recorded history. But the effects of Krakatoa were felt around the world for years to come. Sulphur dioxide released by the blasts into the atmosphere increased the reflectivity of clouds, allowing less of the sun's light and heat to reach the Earth's surface and decreasing global temperature by 0.5 degrees. Record winter snowfalls were recorded around the globe for the next four years. A report published in Nature in 2006 suggested that Krakatoa may have had such a cooling effect on the oceans that it lasted over a 100 years, counteracting anthropogenic climate change for this time. Today, all active volcanoes are monitored for any changes in activity that could indicate an imminent eruption, such as seismic activity like ground tremors, gas emissions, ground deformation caused by magma or gas buildup, changes in temperature and acidity of hot springs, and through observations such as steam rising from the crater. In most volcanic areas, some sort of activity of these kinds goes on all the time, but it is when changes and increases in activity occur that alarm bells start ringing, literally. Globally, 500 million people live within the danger zone of a volcano, so being able to give early warnings and begin evacuations is essential. Our planet can be violent and deadly, but our knowledge has been building since Krakatoa and hopefully any future eruptions will not bring such a catastrophic death toll. That's all we have time for in this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Mira Senthalingam and Diana O'Carroll and was produced by me, Laura Salt. If you enjoyed this week's Newsflash, why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.